one down, and I don't know how many to go. They've all threatened what they were going to do to me, and Roy really threw me. He had a different introduction when he was talking to me than he gave. First, let me thank the committee for having me here. It's my second time speaking at Camp Monroe, and that's always a great compliment to me when I'm asked back. This cassage I have on, I don't have any children, and I think God uh, knew what he was doing. If I'd had children, I certainly couldn't have done the work I've done in AA. And I have many children in Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, you other speakers, they were not showing partiality by giving me this cassage. This is my Mother's Day cassage from my boys in AA, and I appreciate it very much. My name's Millie Copeland, and I am an alcoholic. Hi, everybody. I'm a very grateful alcoholic. I'm grateful to every alcoholic who ever walked through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. Whether they're drunk or sober, that isn't important. Because, you see, each one has taught me something. Many have taught me how not to drink, and many have taught me if I wanted to stay sober, the things I had to do to stay sober, and others have taught me the things not to do if I wanted to stay sober. And I'm grateful to these people. I learn from everybody. Now, I'm a big book gal. Most of you that know me know this. Uh, I believe what that big book tells, and, uh, tells me, and uh, I try to practice what I'm taught in that book. And the book, big book tells me I must tell it like it was what happened and what it's like now. I speak for one purpose and one purpose only. I pray with all my heart there might be one woman in this room that I might be able to reach, that she doesn't have to go as far with her drinking as Millie Copeland had to go. I'm going to step on a few toes, but when I first came in AA, the first thing I was taught was honesty, complete honesty, and I have to be honest with you. I was born and raised in Virginia, and all Virginians are basically snobs. <laughs> they can't help it, they're born that way. All my life, all I ever heard was who my grandparents were and who my great-grandparents were and who I was and who my father was. And after I came in the AA, I told one of my sisters, you know that, and the 10 cents will get you a cup of coffee. But that pride down there killed me. Now, I'm not, I'm, I hope I don't give you a drunk alarm, but if I do, uh, this is what I'm to do this morning, because uh, I ask the good Lord, I, I never make notes, I ask the good Lord to put the right words in my mouth this morning that might reach someone. So whatever comes up, what he's thinking, not what Millie's thinking. I was 15 years old when I took my first drink. I was babysitting for a family across the street, and the host and hostess went out, and when they came back, they returned with some friends. And Mr. Jack was in the kitchen mixing, and I'm going to date myself now. You young ones won't even know what I'm talking about. But he was mix mixing alcohol and grapefruit juice. 
And I, like any typical teenager, I was most interested in what he was doing. And my first drink, he asked me, Millie, would you like to have one? And I said, oh, yeah, because I had never seen drinking. The only drinking I'd ever seen in my life when the priest would come to our home, mother would serve a little share of wine. And I knew my father lived and died, never took a drink. So I didn't know anything about drinking, but I was interested. And I took that first drink. The second one, I asked for. The third one, I stole. And I went home swacked for the first time in my life. Now, little nice southern Virginian girls didn't do things like that. So that was the last of my babysitting for that particular family. You know, I hear a lot of people talk about social drinking in AA. I didn't know a thing about social drinking. The only thing I knew about social drinking, if you had a bottle, I could be darn sociable, and that's about all, all I knew about it. I got drunk the first time I drank. I got drunk the last time I drank. It was, uh, I just had a problem right from the beginning. I was a rebel. I was from a family of 12 children. And my father, I wanted to be, I know now, after coming into AA, that uh, I had a, a, an unhealthy love for my father. I wanted to be uh, something special in his life. I wanted to be number one. And this man couldn't do it. He had 11 other children. But I was fighting for that slot all the time. I went out on the boat with him. My two brothers weren't even interested in boats. My father was a tugboat captain, and he had his own business. And in the summertime, he'd take me out on the tug. And by the time I was nine years old, I could stand in the pilot house and read a compass and steer that tug down the harbor as well as he could. If I'd been a man, I'm sure that's what I'd be doing today. I learned to smoke this way. When he'd be down in the engine room or go down to the galley, I'd pick up his pipe and puff on it and pretend I was my father. And that's the way I actually learned to smoke. When I was 18 years old, I fell in love for the first time. Now, let me say this, because there are many, many people in this room who, who love my... Oh, I lost it again. Uh, <laughs> uh, that knew my Isaac. Now, don't be uncomfortable when I talk about him. Uh, I miss him. I'm not going to tell you I don't, but I have so many joyful memories of Isaac, and I'm sure many of you in this room do. So I talk about him. I can't tell my story without him. He was my life. I met him when I was 18 years old, and I was in love for the first time in my life. Now, it isn't a gal in this room doesn't know what I'm talking about. It isn't anything like that first love. But you see, my Isaac was a Jew, and I was raised a Catholic. And some 40 years ago, that just didn't happen in Virginia. The captain happened to be out at sea when we were courting. And when he returned, he was interested in who Mildred, he never called me Millie, he called me Mildred, and Mildred was dating. And when he met my Isaac and found out he was a Jew and he was also from the other side of the track, he immediately broke us up. And I was heartbroken. I was ill, uh, I had the flu and some French stopped by the house to see me, and in the group was a serviceman. Now some 50 years ago in Norfolk, nice girls didn't associate with sailors, 
My daddy told me what he'd do to me if he ever caught me with a sailor, and I was scared of sailors. But I didn't realize this man was in the service because he was in civilian clothes. Some three weeks later, I was working and going to school. I was working in a drugstore, and he came in, and he spoke to me. I didn't know who he was. And he had bought a new car and asked if I was interested in seeing his new car. Now, let me say this. It's not easy to get up here and tell these things. I don't tell it to to, uh, entertain you. I just want every alcoholic woman in this room to know she's not the only one that got into trouble. And this is why I tell these stories. They don't bother me anymore to tell them. He had a bottle of gin, and he asked if I'd like to have a drink. Naturally, I wanted a drink. And when I got off, uh, he suggested that we go to the 30th Division Club. Now, this was a place in Portsmouth that nice girls didn't go to. I heard the girls whispering about it around high school, and I was curious. I wanted to know what this thing was that I wasn't supposed to see. So he suggested we go to the American Legion, I mean to the uh, place in Portsmouth. And we got nipping on the bottle and ran out of gin and got another bottle of gin. And he began to shoot me the line that all older men shoot young ladies. First, I fell in love with you the first time I saw you, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Let's get married. And I thought, well, now that, that'll straighten out Isaac, that'll straighten out the captain, that'll straighten out everybody, I'll marry this joker. Well, in Virginia, you had to wait three days to get married. And I don't know of any alcoholic, practicing alcoholics, can wait three days for anything. So we went down to North Carolina to get married, and I had to come through there coming up here, and every time I go through, I just, yeah. (laughs) We arrived down there. This is alcoholic thinking. We arrived down there, and we didn't, uh, the car, one of the locks were broken on the door, and I didn't want to leave the booze in the car, and I didn't want to hide it. I was afraid we wouldn't find it when we came out. So I sat it right in the middle of the sidewalk, so I'd see it as it came out of the chapel. Now, I don't remember much more after that. I blacked out. I was like one of our speakers. I, when I drank, I blacked out, and I got into a lot of trouble doing that. But the next morning, I awakened to this horrible voice singing Amapola, and I thought, oh, my God, I've spent the night out. The captain will kill me. And I opened one eye, and I was grateful I at least recognized the man. And he said, good morning, Miss Martin. And I said, you got to be kidding. He showed me the license, and he wasn't kidding. He said, would you like to have a drink? Not only did I want, I mean, like to have a drink that morning, I needed a drink. That was my first long drunk. I can't truthfully stand here and tell you how long this marriage lasted. It was three or four weeks, somewhere around there. It was just one big blackout. Then I reached the point, I don't know how many of you have reached that in your drinking, I reached the point where the booze wouldn't do anything for me. I couldn't black out the situation I was in, and I knew I had to do something about it. So I called my mother, 
and the captain was out at sea, thank God. And my mother, I loved her, believe me, I dearly loved my mother, and she, uh, she was the only one who never gave up on me. She always said I was a sick one. Little did she know how sick I was, because you see, I was the only alcoholic in my family. And I called my mother and I told her the situation I was in. And she said, come home, Mildred, and we'll do something about it. Now, my mother was the kind that worried about what the neighbors thought. So she wanted to get this thing out of town real fast. So she called her brother, who happened to be an executive with the government in Washington, and Uncle George said, send her up here and I'll get her straightened out. So I went to Washington, and my uncle got me a job with the government. <laughs> when I arrived in Washington, you see, in Virginia, we didn't have open bars. I had never seen a bar in my life. They had beer taverns, but nice girls didn't go in beer taverns, so I didn't know anything about bars. And when I hit Washington, D.C., I went plumb crazy. You could uh, drink on Connecticut Avenue, uh, that they say like a lady, I don't know what they mean by a lady drunk, but anyhow, you could drink like a lady. You could drop down around 14th Street and drink sort of medium class. Then you could drop down around 9th and G. Now that was a place where as long as you had a buck in your hand, they'd serve you. You could follow the booth and they'd serve you. And I hit all three places. The only explanation I have for uh, why I took as much as I, I took, uh, I had a good body. The good Lord had blessed me with a good, healthy body. And I'm going to tell you the routine of my drinking. When I got up in the morning, always with a hangover, I would get up and shake into my clothes, and I'd go down to People's Drugstore, and I'd get a salsa and a BC and ammonia and mix it all together. And down it down, the druggist told me, he said, one of these days, young lady, we're going to pick you up off that floor. And you can imagine what I told him. I would float down to the old Navy building. I'm a little ashamed to tell this now. I don't know how silver service is now, but I'm going to tell you how it was back then. I would float down to the Navy building, and I'd get a couple of pieces of paper in my hand, and walk up down the hall, and nobody ever asked me where I was going or what I was doing. And I took your tax money for this. I'd go here at lunchtime and I'd get a double shot. And they didn't have all the fancy things I got today. A uh, little waitress used to get me raw coffee and I'd chew that and float back to the Navy building until 4.30. And then I'd come out of the Navy building and hit the old park side, which is my favorite water hole. And just as soon as I hit the door, I'd say, start the party, Millie's here. And then that was drinking until 2 o'clock in the morning. And I did, did this day in and day out. And as I say, only a good, healthy body kept me alive. I had keys to an apartment, friends of my family, and it was one of the better sections of Washington, D.C., in uh, Rock, Creek, Rock Creek Park. And we were all drinking, and I was a kind of drunk. I love people. I love people sober, but I love people when I was drunk. I could start out all by myself in a bar and pick up a couple of friends and hit the next bar and pick up a couple of more. And this particular night, I'd picked up something like 15 people. 
And we went out to Maryland because in Virginia, I mean in uh, Washington, D.C., they didn't uh, serve after 12 o'clock on Saturday night. So we went out to Maryland and closed the bars out there. And you know, we never have enough. And we had to have one more for the road. So I invite all these friends, newfound friends, to this lovely apartment. I knew they had a bar. I was go supposed to go by there and check the apartment. They were in Florida for the winter. And uh, I invited all my friends in, and we cleaned out the bar. And as we were leaving, uh, an argument started between two of the boys, and I stepped in between them, and somebody hit me on the chin, and I landed on the curb. Now, the situation's different today. Back then, they'd lock you up. They caught you staggering down the street. I saw you drunk. Today, it's a little different, but back then, they did. And every drunk or every alcoholic hated the sound of a siren. And as I sat on that curb, I saw lights going on in this apartment and that apartment. And the next thing I heard, I heard this horrible sound getting closer and closer. Now, up there, they didn't send one patrol car this, like they did in our area. They sent two patrol cars and a patrol wagon. Everybody got in the wagon but Millie. And the policeman said, get in. And I said, indeed not. You don't know who I am. I'm Captain H.P. Tyree's daughter. He said, <laughs> he, he and I, uh, he put me in. <laughs> and he and I fought all the way down to second precinct. Now, I didn't go to jail. And I thank my God for this every day of my life. Because I worked with a lot of girls in jail. And let me tell you, gals don't get the break you boys get in jail. It's rough on them. And I'm, I'm glad I didn't have to face that. But I did have to face the embarrassment of standing in front of a sergeant. I gave him a fictitious name uh, and a fictitious address. Back then, they were not segregated as we are today, and I, it was in a black section. And he accepted it. He knew I wasn't black, but he let me get by with it. <laughs> and that's the only reason I don't have a record today. And I don't kid myself for a moment that it isn't all out there waiting for me. All I got to do is pick up that drink, and I can, I can wind up in jail. I went home that morning, and I lived in one room, and my heart bleeds for every woman that's out on that, on that street today, alone. I know what it is for her. I know how rough it is for her. But I want to say this. Anytime you see a woman who is an alcoholic with a man, you can bet your dollar, bottom dollar he's got a bottle or the price of one. That's all she's looking for is one more drink. Now, it's true that I know she gets, but that's all she's looking for. I went to my room that morning, and I thought, I can't go back to Norfolk, because you see, in the meantime, I had gotten a letter from my father, and it said, Mildred, not dear, just Mildred, as far as I'm concerned, you are dead. Do not correspond with your mother or your sisters. Do not return to Norfolk, or I will personally see that you are put away. And he didn't mean Fellowship Hall. 
he meant the nut house in Williamsburg, and I knew what he meant. And he signed it, my daddy and her father, he signed it Captain H.P. Tyree. Now, that would have done something to a normal person. I used to carry this around in my pocketbook, and I could sit at a bar, and my money would get a little short, and I could whip that letter out. Now, I don't know how many of you will be this honest, but I was a con artist from way back. And I could read that letter with all the gestures and conjure up a few tears, and the free drinks would flow like wine. <laughs> I wore a plum out. But that morning, I knew I couldn't go back to Norfolk. I knew I couldn't stop drinking in Washington. All my friends drank. I did what most alcoholics think when they reach the point of desperation. I slashed my wrist. I wanted out of this world. I slashed this one first. And you know, the good Lord's taken a lot of scars away through age, except this one. And I never wash my dishes, or take a bath, or look at my arm, then I don't bow my head and ask God to forgive me. Because you see, I was taking the very thing that God, or was going to take the very thing that God had given me, my life. And I've always been ashamed of that. I am today. But when I started on this arm, the blood was shooting to the ceiling. I become frightened, and I went next door to friend of mine, and she returned and took me to a doctor. And as he sutured my arm, he said, young lady, I don't know of what faith you belong, but you need to talk to somebody. You've got a problem. And when I left there, I thought, uh, well, he, he may be right. I must have a problem. But you see how I could always justify everything I did. Now, this gin bit... When I married that man, I never drank another drop of gin until I was safely married to Isaac Copeland. I knew every bottle of gin had a husband in it. <laughs> they say an alcoholic doesn't have willpower. That's a lot of stuff. I never took another drop of gin. Now I was in trouble with liquor. And I called uh, a priest and made an appointment, and, and believe me, I'm not, I would not live in a community without churches. But they knew very little about alcoholism back then, and especially a woman. It was a moral issue where women were concerned. And I met this man in his uh, study, and I told him as much as I wanted him to hear, but not everything. Like I don't tell everything from this podium. And I, I know within my heart, every alcoholic woman in here can fill in the things that I'm not talking about. So I don't worry about it. But as he sat there, he said, uh, his only answer to me was, come back to the church, get active, and learn to drink sensibly. By the time I left his study, I was out on the street, I had justified the whole thing. If I had not drank liquor, this wouldn't have happened to me. So I started drinking beer and wine. And I get so tickled when I go on a 12-step call and a gal will say to me, well, I only drink a few beers. I got news for you. I got into just as much trouble with a tummy full of beer and wine as I did with anything else. All of it was poison for Millie. 
I came home, uh, every time I'd come, I'd come home when my father was out of town. I was forbidden to go to his home, but when he wasn't there, I'd go down to see my mother. And every time I'd go down to Norfolk, I'd look up Isaac. And I always knew where to find him. He was either in the <laughs> newspaper or in the beer tavern or standing on the corner. And at this particular time, uh, two girlfriends and I came home on vacation and when we left, uh, Mother had us up to dinner, and uh, we were down in the Virginia Beach. Mother had us up to dinner, and we, as we were leaving, Gracie said, God, I'd love to have a drink. And I said, I would too, but I don't know if any place can get one in Norfolk. I, and then I said, hmm, I bet you Isaac Copeland would know. You see, when I had seen him uh, this particular time I came home, I forgot to tell you that, but uh, as I came home, I went downtown looking for Isaac. And he was standing on the same old corner, and he was, his shirt was soiled, he needed a shave. You see, my Isaac was an alcoholic also. And he looked horrible. And I stood across the street and looked at him and thought, my God, is this what I've wasted my life for? I'll never look at him again. And I went back to Washington with intentions of never contacting him, but this night I needed a drink. So we went downtown looking for Isaac, and there he stood on the corner, and he was sober. I didn't know he'd just come out of the hospital, <laughs> but anyhow, he was sober. And you see, my Isaac was real smart. It's popular today, but it wasn't back then. But he had a, well, he wore a 16 and a half collar. He had a full head of black curly hair. And he had a real rolling chest, and he used to unbutton his shirt down to about here and let that chest come out, you know. I thought every way I could clean this up, I don't, the only thing I can tell you is the sexiest thing I ever laid my eyes on. <laughs> and we told him our problem, he took us up the American Legion, and he was not drinking. And this was strange. And he was paying for our drink. And Isaac always said, Millie, you've still got a resentment. But anyhow, uh, he left the table, and I said to the girls, you know, we're, we're working, and we've all got money, and this man just works for a living. We shouldn't let him pay for our drinks. We'll pay for our own drinks. So when he came back, I said, Isaac, we're going to pay for our own drinks. And he sat there and let us. <laughs> and I found out years later, he's sitting there with $400 in his pocket. I was... I wish I'd known it then. We made a date, and he came down the beach and walked on the boardwalk, and he said, you know, Millie, you've not found anyone else, and I've not found anyone else. He said, why don't we say the heck with the families and get married? Now, he was 38 years old, or 39 years old, and I was 28. While we had to have the permission of that family, this shows you how immature we were. Isaac always t told me when I'd talk, he'd say, Millie, please get rid of that first husband before you get into me. So I don't want to forget to tell you what happened. After I got to Washington, my uncle had a friend who was an attorney, and he offered to get me an annulment, and a uh, divorce, rather. And when he investigated, this man that I married, he was old enough to be my father, he was under mental observation in the Naval Hospital. He was crazy. 
he had to be the marry me. So I didn't, and I was married under uh, my marriage certificate. Instead of reading Mildred Tyree, it, it was Mildred Tyree White. I don't know where that, because I was drunk. I don't know what I put on there. But anyhow, I, he got me an annulment, and I got rid of him. Anyhow, Isaac asked me to marry him, and I said, uh, well, I'll go back to Washington, resign, and come back, and we'll be married. Well, Isaac was uh, so happy. It took me two weeks to clear up my fast, and when I got back, he was so happy we were getting married, he was stoned out of his mind. <laughs> this time when we waited, uh, we were married in Virginia. And during the, I had bought a gorgeous gown to be married in, a short sleeve gown. And in getting the blood test, they bruised my arm. It looked terrible, so consequently I wound up getting married in a black suit with a white blouse. And back then you wore a hat every way you went. Believe it or not, in AA, when I first come in, you didn't dare speak without a hat on and gloves. It's a different situation today. But I had on white gloves and a large picture hat and a big corsage. And we were married. And Isaac's... After the ceremony, Isaac said, I think we ought to have a few drinks. And I said, oh, yeah, to celebrate. I had bought a, the sexiest nightgown and negligee you've ever seen. This was going to be the night of all nights. Well, we started drinking. <laughs> and next morning, I woke up in bed with a hat, massage. <laughs> That was my Isaac's honeymoon. <laughs> now I had what I wanted. And my drinking changed. As long as I had a bottle in my Isaac, I could care less what went on in the world. Isaac drank every day. I would go on binges. And I'd get a couple of days of sobriety, so I never felt I had a problem. I knew he had a problem, but I never felt I did. Isaac found Alcoholics Anonymous, and he came, and I think, you know, I don't know how many times he told it, but uh, I think the thing that really brought Isaac to his bottom, because this man did love me, one Sunday morning we woke up and sick, oh, we were sick. He didn't have any liquor, and he said, well, he knew a bootlegger where we could go get a, liquor, a shot of liquor. And we went down to one of the worst sections of Norfolk and went into this bootlegging joint, which fascinated me. I had a strange mind. I love these strange things. And there was a man who only had one leg, and uh, they called him Pig Leg. He owned the place. And he could balance a tray of drinks and go clean across that room and not spill a spot. It just fascinated me. I couldn't hardly get me out of that. But he said when he woke up and found, realized where he had taken his wife, that he knew he was in real trouble. So he found Alcoholics Anonymous. And he was good. He went in in September, and I know a lot of you've heard me, but I, 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 I sound like I'm, re to me, I sound like I keep repeating over and over and over, but I got to tell it like it is. I always wanted to have a lot of money. My excuse was that my Isaac was the only Jew in North that didn't have a Cadillac, and by golly, I was going to put him in one. Isaac never wanted Cadillac. Millie wanted a Cadillac.
I wanted an Eldorado convertible with the long white scarf that I could put around my neck and let it blow in the breeze. And I could go by the captain's house and give him this. <laughs> that was my dream. So when Isaac came in, we had, I had one restaurant and I drank that up. And I got, uh, again, I wanted a lot of money, wanted to make a million. You know, alcoholics never think small. They always think big. They remember big. You listen to them when they're sitting around talking. They remember everything big. I went over and <laughs> I was going to AA and oh, we were living in a hotel when we get, lost this restaurant. We moved in the hotel. You see, like I say, I had a weird mind. I never lived in a motel. I mean, a hotel. And that was paradise. All you had to do is lie in bed, pick up the phone, send me a pint. Next thing you knew, somebody's tapping on the door with a pint. I loved it. And I stayed that way while he was going to AA. Uh, when he came home and told me he was going to AA, I said, this is wonderful. Because right away I started thinking, now, this will be more liquor for me if he quits. Okay. And I want to say this before I forget it. I hear a lot of you boys get up here in AA and you talk about You say, I wish I was married to an alcoholic. I got news for you. If you've got a good alanine, you hang on to them because you don't know what it's like with two alcoholics. I love my husband. He loved me. But he stole my liquor. I stole his liquor. <laughs> he stole my money. I stole his money. It was a rat race. It was a sick, sick thing. But I, you know, they say alcoholics aren't smart. I think they're the smartest people in the world. Anytime you can kind of do out of enough money to go in business, you're pretty smart. And I went over and kind my father-in-law out of enough money to open another business. Now, what business would an alcoholic open but a beer tavern? Now, I was not worried about what I was going to sell in that beer tavern. What I wanted to do was to have trucks. Not one truck. I wanted ten trucks and go from door to door like an Avon lady and sell it by the case. And I was dreaming of 10 trucks, 50,000 cases uh, every two days. I mean, I was weird. Well, I, I got this business, but due to the reputation of the place, it had nothing to do with me, believe it or not, but due to the reputation of the place, I was denied ABC license. And I'll never forget it. It was the first day of December, 1947. And I thought, here, my father doesn't love me. My mother doesn't love me. I'm not too sure Isaac loves me. And now the state of Virginia won't let me make a living. So I'll get drunk at him. So I started drinking that day. And in the meantime, I had been on Isaac's back. And this is for any of you non-alcoholics. Uh, if your spouse is going to AA and active in AA, don't complain about it. I began to complain about Isaac going to so many meetings. Why couldn't he stay in the store and help me? So he began to miss his meetings. And his thinking changed. 
And that's dangerous even today for me, for me to miss my meetings. It doesn't take long for my thinking to change. So I go to my meetings religiously. Um, That night when Isaac met me, uh, we went out to dinner. And I said, you know, I think I'll have a Collins Ale. I love Collins Ale. Now, if you young people don't know what I'm talking about, it's green death in a bottle. You don't get drunk on it. You get like a zombie. You just walk around like you're out of it, you know. And I loved it. I drank it by the case. And I ordered a Collins Ale, and Isaac says, you know, I think I'll have one too. And I said, why not? You've been going to this outfit for three months. Certainly you've learned something. Drink one or two and leave it alone. Twenty-three days later, that was my longest, and I pray to God, my last drunk. A lot of things happened. It would take too long to tell you what happened, but one thing I will tell you. <laughs> Tell me two alcoholics living together. Isaac and I were always trying any suggestions anybody made that would keep us from being sick. But we wanted to drink and not be sick. Somebody had suggested uh, if we would take a purgative or a laxative the night before, you wouldn't be so sick. And we were both drunk, and I said to Isaac, maybe we ought to try this. See, Isaac do anything I suggested. <laughs> so all I had in the house was Epsom salt, and I mixed the iced tea glass of Epsom salts and booze. <laughs> he drank one, and I drank one. The next morning, we had one bathroom. <laughs> now, that's sick. God. <laughs> but on the 23rd day of December, we, would say we had uh, another thing someone had suggested, that if you leave beer, sit out overnight. And if any of you plan to drink again, and I'm sure somebody in this room will, I'll give you this little bit of <laughs> news. It works. Uh, let your beer get flat overnight, and you drink it the next morning, it won't bounce. Well, we were sitting there with that flat beer, and we were as flat in every department of our lives that we could be, financially, spiritually, physically, mentally, every way. And I knew this man loved me. Uh, he proved it to me for 39 years how much he loved me. And I think it was the hardest thing he ever had to say in his life. But he said, Millie, I don't care what you do with the rest of your life, but I'm going back to Alcoholics Anonymous. You take what little money that we have and you go back to Washington or whatever you want to do. And I panicked because, see, I love this man. He was the only thing on God's green earth that I loved. And I was losing him. And I knew I was losing him and I didn't want to lose him. And I said, well, honey, we'll meet for dinner and we'll talk about it. He said, well, I'm going to the meeting. I said, it's fine. Well, I tried uh, not to drink too much that day. As I say, I was losing him and I didn't want to lose him. And we met for dinner. And I talked to him and he was still of the same opinion. And I said, well, I'll go to the theater and you go on to your meeting and you will meet and talk on the way home. 
I'd only been in the theater a short time. You see, Isaac was a very smart man. He knew exactly how to handle me. It took me a long time to get wise to this. See, I thought I was a smart one, but Isaac was really the smart one. He came in and knelt down beside me in the theater, and he said, Millie, all the boys have their wives. Uh, they're having a Christmas party, and all the wives have come. He said, I'd appreciate it so much if you'd go up there with me. And I thought, well, certainly I can make this sacrifice if it's going to save my marriage. I can go associate with this bunch of bums that he's associating with. You see, I, I thought of it as like Salvation Army. So anyhow, uh, we went in, I agreed to go to the meeting. Now, by now, I'm sure you have a perfect picture of a very sophisticated, attractive young lady. Now, that's what I thought I looked like until I sobered up. I want to tell you what a ride at Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm short, and I was stout. I hate that word, fat. I was stout. I had flaming red hair. You see, I don't hear it around the A much anymore, but uh, it used to be when we were drinking, we'd, we never said, let's go ahead and get a drink. We'd say, let's split a pint. And I had a friend who was a beauty operator, and she and I decided to split a pint. And we were sitting in her shop, and she looked at me, and she said, you know, Millie, you make a hell of a strawberry blonde. I said, well, let's do it. Next morning, I woke up. It was beautiful, really. It was pretty. But she was so drunk, she forgot the formula. So she had to gradually turn me into a redhead. So I had red hair when I arrived in AA. I had it piled real high on top of my head. You see, that was to take away from this and make me look like this. I had a cigarette holder this long. I see they're coming back in style. I had an ankle bracelet. I had on, just for a moment, think about it, I had on a black satin dress. Now just think about black satin wrapped around that much blubber. <laughs> I weighed 230 pounds. I had a rhinestone pin that big and it was right here. And a lot of my weight was right here. And when I walked in, one of the, it wasn't Alanine back then, but one of the nine alcoholics said she told another one, said, my God, that looks like a train coming into the station. <laughs> but you see, Isaac was smart. They had a meeting before the, he didn't lie, they had a Christmas party, but they had a meeting before the Christmas party. And they had a woman get up and speak. And she told my story up to a point. And then she went beyond this. You see, she'd hit mental institutions. She'd hit the Bowery in New York. And I'd not gone that far. But God gave me enough sense to know when she was talking that if I continued to drink, this was going to happen to me. But you see, the, my pride would not let me come into Alcoholics Anonymous. I would not admit that I had a problem. I was too good for that. And I made Isaac promise me that he would never tell my story to anyone in AA. 
And so I started going to as Alanon, or not Alanon, or non-alcoholic, supporting my husband in his sobriety. Now try that route. That's rough. Because you see, I don't know whether you'll admit it or not, but I got a big mouth. And if I get in a group, if you tell a story, I'm going to try to top it with one of mine. And I still do it today. So I stayed away from the alcoholics. And I sat with all the alanines, not alcoholics. And I did all the things that were wrong then, and they're wrong today. Now, I'm not preaching. I'm only sharing my experience with you. I'm not an expert on alcoholism. But I've been around AA a long time, and I've seen a lot of things, and I'm going to share them with you. I gossiped, and gossip to me, even if it's true, is the most vicious thing that we can do. I have seen gossip and criticism run an alcoholic out of Alcoholics Anonymous to drink again, to die, and I have buried them. So if you've got any juicy gossip, go to the person and straighten it out. Don't make it common gossip. You see, we're not playing games. We're dealing with lies. So don't your mouth get anybody drunk. I think my God has a great sense of humor. I think he enjoyed most of the dumb things I did. <laughs> and I think he sat up there and thought, well, she's in trouble again. I better do something. Isaac and I were fortunate enough to go to Natural Bridge. Now, I don't want any of you to misinterpret what I'm saying. I am not saying that I had a spiritual awakening like Bill Wilson. I'm only telling you what happened to me. And we attended the pageant at Natural Bridge. If you've never been there and you're in that area, please go. This is not a man-made bridge. This bridge was put there by nature. Millions of cars go over this bridge every day. Everything was in total darkness, and I had enough intelligence to know that the voice was coming from a record. But this voice said, everything, as I say, was in total darkness. And this voice said, he said, there will be light. And there was light. And lights were thrown all over this mammoth creation of God. And for the first time in my adult life, I cried. You see, I had learned many years prior to this that a crying woman never got a free drink. So I had stopped crying. But that night, I let the tears drip from my chin. And as we were going back to the cabin, I said to my Isaac, I'm going back to Alcoholics Anonymous. Admit that I'm an alcoholic or I'm going to get drunk. The feeling that I had, I, I want to share with you, I felt clean inside and out for the first time in my life. Now, I can't explain that. that's the feeling I had. And Isaac said, thank God. You see, this man had been praying for this. He knew me better than anyone else. Well, I came back to Alcoholics Anonymous and went to a closed meeting and shocked everybody. I had the first step 
The second step, I love the second step because, see, my family and my priest had told me all my life that I was morally bad. And I was glad to come in here and find out I was nuts. I liked that a lot better. And I had the third step. And I, I'm sure you haven't done this. <laughs> but I went out to sober up the world. I went in bars and tried to drag people off bar stools. Didn't want to get off bar stools. I was thrown out of homes I'd not been asked into. And I got smart real quick. Every Wednesday, Ada and I, uh, the speaker, uh, that first speaker that I heard later became my sponsor, and she was a toughie. She was a great woman. I dearly loved her. She taught me how to love women. I hated women when I came in here. I couldn't stand women. All they talked about was farmers and baby diapers, and uh, that was a big front, too. But anyhow, um, Ada and I'd steal all the literature. See, we didn't have all the things you got today in AA, but we'd steal all the literature we could out at the club and take the big book and carton of cigarettes and go down to the city jail. I See, I thought all the women in the city jail were there because of drinking. I found out later I made a lot of mistakes, but anyhow, Ada always made me do the talking because I had a big mouth. Now, you've never heard a Salvation Army lassie beat the drum any harder than Millie Copeland did every Wednesday afternoon. Admit you're an alcoholic, find God, that's it. No message. But the miracle was I stayed sober. You see, for the first time in my life, I was giving of myself and expecting nothing in return, and I stayed sober. Made a lot of mistakes. I could share a lot of experiences with you, keep you from having making these mistakes. I had a big book, and I kept it uh, well dusted on my coffee table in case you came in. But I hadn't bothered to read it. I heard a man, uh, I, you know, a lot of times we think we're listening when we're not. I think one of the greatest stories I've ever heard in AA, I had a friend up here in Burlington. He had a new baby. At first, uh, Barney happened to be chairman the first month that this man was in. I love his name. His name was Stu. Isn't that a perfect name for a drunk? <laughs> And they went over to Greensboro, and they had a Jewish attorney speak over there. And on the way back, he said, Barney, said, how come that man's talking in AA? And he said, no, what do you mean? Why shouldn't he talk in AA? He said, he's a Jew. And he said, well, you know we have no restriction on religion in AA. He said, no, nah, Barney, that's not true. He said, every Monday night you get up and say, there are no Jews or thieves in Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> So you're not always listening. <laughs> Anyhow, this boy got up. Uh, God love him. He, he stayed sober for 10 years and got sick again and died in alcoholic convulsions in Portsmouth Hospital. But all, I mean, Portsmouth Jail. But I'll always be grateful to this man because he explained a personal inventory. You see, I thought taking a personal inventory was telling you all the fights I'd been in, all the problems I'd had, and the places I'd been. And he explained it differently. 
He said, go inside and look at yourself and bring it out and write it down, your character defects, and start working on them. Well, the next time, I wasn't going to let anybody see me do this. Next morning after Isaac left for work, I, you know, we always have to make a production out of everything. I got a cup of coffee and a big book and sit down to take my full step. That was the hardest and toughest job I've ever had to do in my life, to be completely honest with Millie Copeland and nobody else. I tried to cheat on it. I put down the word jealousy, no, not me, I'm not the least bit je jealous, so I'm the most generous person in the world. I don't know about the rest of you, but I know about me, when I'd get drunk, I'd give you anything I had. My father-in-law and Osgood bought me a lovely fur coat, and I was drunk one day, and my niece happened to make the remark, Aunt Millie looks like a bear in that fur coat. I took it off and gave it to her, never got it back. But, well, I lost my train of thought, isn't that terrible? Oh, when you get old, this happens to you, so be prepared. <laughs> but anyhow, I started working on my character defects, and I began to grow and make a new life for myself in Alcoholics Anonymous. You can't sit on your butt and get anything done. You've got to work if you want to get anything. For me, I had to. Now, uh, that's the way it was, was and uh, what happened, and I'm going to tell you what it's like now. And I may go to preaching here, but uh, if I do, you'll have to bear with me or go on to lunch. <laughs> there are a few things that bother me in Alcoholics Anonymous. I cannot for the life of me understand how we can accept this as a disease and cannot accept a relapse. I just don't understand it. If it's an illness, it's an illness. I don't know how you feel, but I know how I feel when one of our boys or one of our gals have gone out and tried it again. I know how tough it is for them. I can remember when I'd get drunk and call my mother and cuss her out, and then the next day realize what I had done and could not pick up that phone and apologize, and I would send her a gift, and if she didn't need any gifts, all she wanted was my, life, my, my love and to be the kind of daughter that she tried to raise. That's, and then when they come back in after they've been sick again, and they walk through that door, and I hear little remarks like, you think you're going to make it this time? Think you really mean it this time? That isn't what an alcoholic's looking for. They're looking for the same thing that Millie Copeland was looking for when I walked in here, love and understanding. I don't know about you, but I know it's Millie Copeland's job to be here with my heart and my arms open and say, welcome home. Somewhere along the way, honey, you missed it. But together we'll try to find it. That's my job for the rest of my life. My women, uh, I, I get, can really get on a kick there. Uh, when a gal walks in here and she's using too much makeup and her language is a little foul, let me tell you, she has to use that foul language. She's out on that street. Because I don't care how bad a woman looks, it's always that character's trying to put the make on her. 
And so she learns to say, I buy my own GD booze. You mind your own GD business. Now, I didn't say it that way when I was drinking. And so she has to protect herself. But I got news for you. If you'll love her, she'll become a lady. I have guarantee for that. I've got friends that way. One of my closest friends. I had never known a woman that was in prison. But she had been in prison, or had been in prison. And I'd, I'd back her morals against anybody's morals in this room. We made a lady out of her. I had a gal, I, went, I won't say where because I would not knock a group, but I went to a group to speak. It was in Virginia. i got to say that. <laughs> and one of the boys came over and said, Millie, would you talk to this girl? And I said, what's wrong with her? He said, the women in the group won't have anything to do with her. I said, why? He said, well, she had to get her money on the street. I said, what's that got to do with her alcoholism? And he said, I don't know. And I said, certainly I'll talk to her. So I went over and talked to her, and I told her, I said, honey, if you ever, I said, I'll write to you. I got her address, and she got mine, and I said, I'll write to you, and if you ever down in my area, contact me. And I did the things that all of us do. I sent her a big book, and we corresponded. In the meantime, she started courting. I told her, I, she said, it was tough because we wouldn't have anything to do with it. And I said, look, honey, you hang in there. You're not coming to A for people. You're coming here for your life. And that program is good. Don't let anybody mess it up for you. And in the meantime, she married one of the boys in the group, and he was in the construction business. And they came down to our area. And I told one of my babies, and one of the speakers mentioned uh, babies and pigeons. I got news for you, they'll both do the same thing in your lap if you let them. Uh, <laughs> But if you train them right, they'll do just about what you want. So I called Roni and I said, Roni, I got a new gal coming in this area, and uh, she's had a rough life. And I said, I will not criticize you for a moment if you don't want to be her friend outside of Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, but I'm going to tell you what Millie's going to do. I'm going to have lunch with her. I'm going to have her in my home. I'm going to make a friend out of her. And Roni said, well, I'll do whatever you want to do, Millie. And this is what we did. And she left. And like most of us in AA, we write for a while, and then we sort of lose track. Five years later, I was speaking in a group in Virginia. <laughs> this lovely lady walked over to me with gray hair, pretty she could be, and hugged and kissed me. And she said, you don't know who I am, do you, Millie? And I said, no, honey, I have to be honest. I can't remember. She said, I'm Mary. I couldn't believe it. And she said, I was so excited when I knew you were coming. I just had to tell you. She said, guess what? I am the president of the local garden club. <laughs> and for a moment, I felt like, wouldn't it be nice to tell that bunch of snobs who their president was? But, <laughs> but love did this and only love. I hope I don't run over too far. Women are most, uh, to me, they, they're the dearest things in the world, uh, the alcoholic woman, because she does not have it easy. 
Believe me, even today, you go to one of the jails and talk, talk to a gal that's in jail, she doesn't get the proper treatment. She's, they do all sorts of things to them. I couldn't even share it from the podium. Uh, if she walks down the street and bums, now you men can do this. They call it panhandling. Do you know what they call it when a woman bums money on the street? It's a moral issue. She is soliciting, and they put her in jail for it. I don't know of any restaurant. Maybe it's different today, but back when I was drinking, I don't know of any restaurant that would hire a woman to wash dishes. They would a man, but not a woman. So she had to get her money in many, many strange ways to get her booze. So you try to understand them. And as I say, if you love them, they're going to become ladies. We've got a lot of great ladies in AA right here in this front row. I'm going to tell you what my program is like. Uh, like I say, I am not an expert on AA. I'm not an expert on the disease of alcoholism. I can only tell you what's happened to me. One other gripe I've got, and I might get through to some of them, I hear a lot of preaching and teaching in AA today. I don't hear a lot of sharing and caring. You know, everybody gets behind this podium and gets to be an authority, and not all of them, but some of them get to be an authority, and uh, they start preaching. And that sort of bothers me a little bit, because I thought it was a sharing and caring program. I'm going to tell you how I work it. When I get up in the morning, I have a large, many of you have been in my home, I have a large easy chair, a big picture window, until all these people started moving on our island. I could look out across the sand dunes, now I'm looking in somebody else's living room, but anyhow. Um, I get a cup of coffee and I sit in my big chair and I say my prayers every morning. It's part of my life. I don't understand these people say, well, you know, sometimes I go to 12 o'clock and I forgot to say my prayers. Maybe I've been doing it so long it's a habit. I don't know. But that's the first thing I do. I say my prayers. And my prayers are very simple. I don't louse those up either. I always say, good morning, dear guy. Thank you for another day of living. At my age, you're grateful for every day. Thank you, dear God, for another day of sobriety. You see, I've got that kind of faith. I don't believe that God will put anything in my way today that he and I can't handle. And I believe that with all my heart. So I thank him for my sobriety in the morning. And then I ask him to let me be tolerant and patient and understanding. Let me be a kind person and a thoughtful person. Let my heart always be open to my neighbor. And then I pray for many of you, and then I close my prayers. Then I sit there in my living room, and as I say, look at the window, and I meditate, and think of all the gifts that have been given to me, my living room, maybe it's not the way you, <laughs> I'm sure that my sister doesn't approve of it anyhow. Uh, my whole walls are covered with plaques and gifts that people have given me in Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't have any pictures and all that sort of thing. My house is an AA house. 
In fact, in one of my bedrooms, I've got Bill's talk and Dr. Bob's talk right over the bed, so any drunk sleeps in that bed reads them. Uh, I, after, like I say, I thank God for all my many, many, many gifts, and then I start my day. I practice these principles in all my affairs. I don't try to cheat on my taxes and think it's smart. I try to be honest in everything that I do. This is what Alcoholics Anonymous teaches me. I had a lot of them criticize me. It'll take just a moment to tell you about this, but after I'd been sober many, many years, I went up to Blackstone and everybody had a Cadillac, but Isaac and Millie. So I got Cadillac conscious again. This is sober. And I went in business again. And in 11 months, I lost everything we had. <laughs> so, uh, I think God knew what he was doing. He brought me back down on my knees where I should have been all the time. As I say, uh, my life is a, a full life, a good life. Uh, God's been most, well, AA and God have been so good to me. When I lost my Isaac, uh, it was a great blow. But you know, it took me a while. Uh, you know, you never know what you hear at these meetings until you hit a crisis. Then you know what you got. And all the things that you had taught me began to come back. Easy does it, Millie, one day at a time. This too will pass. And they rallied around me. I didn't have time to grieve, really at Isaac's memorial service, and when they came back to the house, Dave, many of you know Dave, said, Millie, you're speaking in Canuga. I said, Dave, I can't do it. Yes, you can. I said, Dave, all I'll do is get up there and cry. He said, fine, we'll all cry with you. So he got me started right back speaking. Thank God for that. Because you see, my Isaac had sat me down. He knew he was dying, and he sat me down, and he said, Millie, now, two things I ask of you. Stay active in Alcoholics Anonymous and don't sell our home for at least a year. This will give you a chance to think about what you want to do. And I thank God for this advice. I made that promise and there were times in the first year that I was going to Florida, I was going to California, I was going to West Virginia, I was going everywhere. I was running, really. I didn't drink, but I was getting ready to run. So I had to stay there and face it. And it got easier and easier. And as I say, AA rallied around me. I could not tell you the things that Alcoholics Anonymous did for Isaac and I during his illness and after I lost him. They saved our lives, really. I, as I say, I practice all these principles, principles in all my affairs. I try to be well, honest with my fellow man. I take the calls for our county, not for our town, but for the whole damn county. <clears throat> when I went down there 18 years ago, uh, we had no telephone. We don't have telephone answering service down there now. And we went to a business meeting, and I said, you know, anybody's got a private line can convert it to a business phone and list Alcoholics Anonymous. All my friends are giving me H because they can't find us. 
Nobody wanted it. So then uh, we had another business meeting, and I still got a little temper. And I said, well, all right, I'll take it for one year. I'll convert my phone to a business phone, and I'll take it for one year. But you see, <laughs> I'm something to deal with in the group. I said, but I'm paying my own phone bill. I don't want anybody in the AA to say they're paying my damn phone bill. So they pay for the, their part of the bill, and I pay for the other. I said, I'll take it for a year. That was 16 years ago. <laughs> and we have that business meeting, and Millie wants to give it up. And you see, I still got an ego, and they say, oh, no, Mama, you know, you know how to handle it. You know where to send them and what to do. And my ego gets getting bigger. But I'll take it another year. <laughs> this year, I thought I had a good, good problem, you know, a real good excuse. I said, you know, I'm getting older, and I've had a lot of trouble with arthritis, so I'm looking for sympathy, but... And I said, that damn phone rings, and I got to fall over his chair to get to it. And I said, I get in the backyard, and it starts ringing, and I can't get back to it. And, and I said, by the time I get in, it stops ringing. And I thought, well, I had it whipped. They said, thought about it for. They said, well, let's wait till the next business meeting. We'll decide. Well, in the meantime, two or three of them got together and bought me one of those phones that doesn't have a wire. You can carry it anywhere. <laughs> They, they thought they were making a nice gesture. I knew what they were doing. They wanted me to keep that phone. I can sit in the tub, and when you call me now, you don't know where I am. <laughs> I enjoy it. I enjoy it. Every moment of it. Rarely does a day go by in my life there isn't an alcoholic in my home. Sometimes a wet one, sometimes a dry one. I contact many alcoholics, naturally having the phone, and I talk to an awful lot of alcoholics. I keep my life real, real full. Uh, I have said this many times, since I've been sober, never have I been without a roof over my head and groceries in my icebox and a buck in my pocket. Sometimes maybe just a buck, but always a buck. So I've never wanted for anything. God has seen that I've had everything that I needed. And for this I am most grateful. I'm grateful to every one of you in this room because you're each part of my life. I mean that literally. If you're ever in the Nags Head area, you don't even have to remember my name. Just look up Alcoholics Anonymous and I'll answer the phone. My coffee pot's on. I had to put a restriction on that because you nuts started coming at 6 and 7 in the morning. I don't get out of bed that early. You didn't even give me time to make my bed, so I put a restriction on it. Now, come after 11. That gives me time to get up and make my breakfast and clean my house. But from 11 to 2 in the morning, my coffee pot's on and my back door's open. I never lock my back door. Came home one day, and that's when Isaac was living. There was a note there. Dropped by, had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and a glass of milk. Read Isaac's Playboy. See you later. <laughs> and I like it that way. You don't see many AA homes anymore. You used to see them an awful lot when I first come in, and they, they saved my life. We didn't have meetings every night like you do now. It was, it's a big change in AA, and I'm accepting it. 
Uh, I love the young people that are coming in, and some of their ideas are fantastic to me. Uh, the only thing sometimes I don't communicate. I had one of the boys, we were on our way to a meeting, and Isaac was in the back, and Doug was sitting up front with me, and he said, uh, I said, Doug, I'm always interested in how people find Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, how'd you find AA? He said, well, I was, was he went to the rehab center, and he was shipped down to Ocracoke, and he said he contacted Tom Hampton, who's a very dear friend of mine. He didn't mind my breaking his hand, and everybody knows he's in AA down there. And he said, and Tom was cool. And man, I snapped. I said, oh, no, Doug, you're wrong. I said, Tom Hampton has never been cool with anyone. He said, no, Mommy, you don't understand. I mean cool. <laughs> so I don't always communicate with him. And it thrills me to death, the love they have for me. And they feel so free with me. At my age, they can tell me anything. They can't always share this with the younger girls in there, but they tell me anything. And they love to get me to talk about corn liquor, because they don't know what corn liquor is. And then they tell us about corn liquor. But I get all of this love, day in and day out. I don't know what my life holds for me. I'm like any other alcoholic. If you back me in a corner, and I reach the point where I say I don't give a damn, I'll drink again. And I know this, and this is true of any alcoholic. But if I get up with the same attitude each day that I got up with this morning and the fate that I got up this morning, my cup will runneth over. I know that what I am today is God's gift to me, and what I become is my gift to God, and I thank my God for Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you.